0: What does the Bible say about Satan and false healings? What does the Bible say about Satan and false healings? This question was somewhat vague, although I know what the person has in mind. Does Satan have the power to heal? And if he does, could parts of the modern healing movement actually be demonic? Now, that question might catch you off guard. You might think to yourself, wait, why would Satan ever want to heal someone? I thought he only ever wants to make people suffer and and be physically harmed. Why would he want to do good? But just think about it. Satan's mission is not to make people physically suffer. His mission is to bring others down to his level, which is the level of complete and total rebellion against God. Satan doesn't want to see your body destroyed. He wants to see your soul destroyed forever. He wants you to curse God one way or another. Now, through temptations, how does Satan entice people to curse God? One way is, indeed, by inflicting or afflicting people with physical suffering. You all remember the story of Job, where Satan contends before God that the only reason Job still is faithful to the Lord is because he has his health. You take that away and he will curse God to his face. Job 2 verse 4 says, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power Only spare his life. There's many things we could study here, but we're just making a simple observation about Satan himself. And this passage shows that he does indeed have the power to do harm, to afflict people. Now, God must grant him authority. That's a whole different question. But nonetheless, Satan has the power to afflict Job's health. Satan even has the power to kill Job. Which is why God must say, only spare his life. Now, what happens, verse 7 then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Really, it was a terrible amount of suffering that Job went through, and Satan was the direct cause. So clearly, Satan has the power to afflict health, and the same goes with demons. They're all just fallen angels. As we learned from the New Testament, oftentimes demon possession came with physical suffering, physical ailments, harm. Again, their goal is to afflict people, not for its own sake, but that, so that people would curse God. They want to keep people away from worshiping God. Now, that being said, if Satan and demons have the power to cause harm, does it stand to reason that they also have the power to heal And it does seem, at least likely, it appears that Satan and demons, as fallen angels, have some power over humans in general, and there's no reason to think that this power cannot be used to heal. But you're probably still wondering, why on earth would Satan and or demons ever want to heal people? And it's not hard to answer. Satan knows that some people can be made to curse God by afflicting them with suffering, Whereas other people can be made to ignore God by giving them perfect health. Some people can be kept from worshiping God through good health because for them, health is their God. They live for health. They essentially worship health. The most important thing in life to them is health. And so as long as they're healthy, they ignore God. Additionally, if Satan could heal people, he could very easily use such healings to validate false teachers. So many people think that health is the most important thing in life. And so if some false teacher came along and he promised health, he promised healings, people would follow him. So you could easily see how if Satan and demons could enable healing, they could really enable a false teacher like this to to flourish. So you could say that it's reasonable to conclude that Satan and demons have the power to heal, and it's reasonable to conclude that they have the motive to do so if the opportunity presented itself. But we still have yet to ask the most important question here, which is, well, what does the Bible really say? Does the Bible say anything directly or even indirectly about Satan and demons actually healing people? And the answer is, well, yes. I us start off with a few indirect references. Listen to this. First you have in the Olivet Discourse, It's Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching his disciples about this future time of trouble on earth known as the Tribulation. And he tells them that this time will be full of false signs and wonders. He says this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 and 24. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. This passage shows that at least in the tribulation time, Amazing signs and wonders and miracles will take place, but they won't be from God. And surely these will include the the signs of healing, but they won't be from God. So who is energizing? Who is empowering people to do these false signs and wonders? Well, we have another reference which connects Satan to these false signs and wonders. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is also talking about that future tribulation time. And he's talking about this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, how he will arise. He says this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So here we have a passage showing that the, the future power and activity of Antichrist, which includes working miracles, is in fact fueled by Satan. And this most certainly includes false healings. Revelation chapter 13 verse 2 says this in regard also to the tribulation time that Satan gives to Antichrist his power and his authority. Then what happens? Then the Antichrist receives a fatal wound to the head but he is miraculously healed, perhaps even resurrected. After this, Revelation 13:3 says then the whole earth was amazed And followed after the beast. And so here we have, in fact, an explicit reference showing Satan using a false healing to deceive people. It was a real healing, but it came from not from God. And he did so to deceive people. So we find then that not only are false miracles and false healings possible, but they are guaranteed to happen in the last days. They happened in the past. Remember Pharaoh's magicians able to reproduce several of the miracle, miracles that Moses performed. They will happen in the future. And although we are not currently in the tribulation period, false prophets and false teachers do exist, empowered by the evil one. And so at the very least, we must admit the possibility in this age that signs, wonders, even healings can be from God or not from God or from Satan. Those in charismatic circles bury their head in the sand to this fact, but it's, it's true. We reject the ongoing nature of the sign gifts. That's a, an entirely separate issue, but for those who believe they exist, they must acknowledge that signs and wonders can come from God or not from God or from the devil. This means that when you hear about some supposed miracle or healing taking place, not only do you have to ask whether or not it's authentic, but you must also ask, does it come from God or not? That is a perfectly legitimate and valid question. Now, we know that those healing crusades you see on TV are a total sham. But if someone claims a real healing, okay, okay, First, you must ask whether or not it's authentic. Then it is entirely fair to ask, where does it come from? Where is it coming from? How do you answer that question? How can you tell where a sign or wonder comes from? Well, that principle in Deuteronomy 13 answers this question. Just listen to this, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. God is telling the people, he says, If a a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, And gives you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or wonder comes true. Concerning which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods. Whom you have not known. And let us serve them. Then, verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Then in verse 5, God prescribes that that false prophet should be put to death. Now you might be thinking, wait, this person just came before the people and did a real miracle. He said it comes true. There's a real miracle that happens. So it must be from God, right? Well, God says, well, what are they saying? What is their message? And if they're telling you to go after other gods, that's a false prophet. Yeah, the miracle may have happened, but it it didn't come from God. And the same principle here applies even today. What matters most is not what a person does, but what a person says. Even if someone works a real sign, it's possible. That in and of itself does not prove that it came from God. You must still test them by their message. Understand, miracles and healings were never given for their own sake. They're called signs for a reason, because signs point to something else. And in this case, their purpose was to validate a messenger and his message. So you must ask, what is the message attached to this sign? Is it biblical? Does it fit the gospel? Or is this false teaching? This most certainly applies today. And really, it's no coincidence that of all those preachers and healers you see on TV, they all have plenty of documented heretical teaching which you can find easily online. This is something we actually displayed in Second Peter. So the conclusion here overall is just to be discerning. You must be discerning. Because yes, Satan can be behind healings. It is possible. You must still test all things, and the test is God's word. When it comes to the modern healing movement, I would say that most of what we see, if not all, are phony healings to begin with. There have been countless exposés following people after these supposed healing crusades, and nobody's healed. But nonetheless, if anyone claims to work a wonder... We must still discern if it's authentic and if it comes from God. Because not only are false signs, false wonders, false healings possible, they happen in the past. Pharaoh and his magicians, they will happen in the future, certainly in the tribulation time. And we must admit the possibility they could happen today. So that brings us to an end of this first question. Indeed, an interesting question, certainly. And something to be aware of at least and to always be discerning because there at the very least there's a lot of false teaching and deception going around around today when it comes to the signs and the wonders. Okay, question number two. A good, more practical question. What does the Bible say about why all the Gospels are different? This is a good question. What does the Bible say about why all the Gospels are different? This is good seeing that we're about to study the Gospel According to Mark. And when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that we have four accounts of the life of Jesus, and they're similar, but they also are very unique. They all have unique things about them. And so, why is that? And the short answer to the question is that they were written by four different authors from four different perspectives. Yes, God is the ultimate author of Scripture, but God inspired Scripture true human authors, and he used their individual vocabularies and style and backgrounds to pen his inspired word. And so it's along these lines that we can explain the differences among the Gospels. Now keep in mind, although different, the Gospels all paint a harmonious picture of the life of Christ. In fact, although unique, the Gospels are so consistent and harmonious in the life of Christ, It's really one of the strongest evidences that what they're saying is true. But that's what you would expect. If you had four different people each telling of an event, you'd expect them to be unique, but they would all harmonize together. For example, if I had four random people in this room write down their version of what happened on September 11th, 2001, we would get four different, unique accounts. But if they were all truthful, they would harmonize together into one fluid account. And that's what we get with the Gospels. So really to understand more the differences of the four Gospels, you need only to study them, study their background, understand who's writing them, why are they writing, to whom are they writing, and so forth. You'll understand why there are differences. Ultimately though, by realizing that we are dealing with four different perspectives of the same event, we would expect them to be unique but still harmonize together, and that's what we get. Now, whoever asked this question asked, why are the four Gospels different? There's another question they could have asked, why are the four Gospels so similar? And that's really the kicker, because if you have four accounts of the same event, we would expect them to be unique and different. We wouldn't expect them to be terribly similar, but there are parts of the Gospels which are very similar especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So how do you explain these similarities? And this is that some people to believe that the authors of Scripture and the Gospels used other Gospels as their source, even this lost document called Q as a source when writing. But all these theories of literary dependence have their own horde of difficulties. It's all talking about what's called the synoptic problem. You ever heard of that? It makes for an interesting study, but we're not going to get into it right now because nobody asked the question. In all seriousness, though, in a few weeks as we get going in Mark, the Gospel of Mark is at the heart of this so-called synoptic problem, and I'll touch on it when we get there as far as it concerns everyone. we will worry about that when it comes. Question number three now. What does the Bible say about women sharing the gospel. What does the Bible say about women sharing the gospel? Should women share the gospel? The answer to this is, of course, yes. Of course, women should share the gospel. Several passages like Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, commission all believers, all disciples, to make disciples, to spread the good news, and that would include women. Women should most certainly share the gospel with other women and with children, just like Timothy's mother and grandmother did with him. However, I'm assuming that whoever asked this question, really based on how they phrased it, wants to know if women should share the gospel with men. And given the question, I'm assuming this person has in mind 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, and is wondering, does that passage cover evangelism? In that regard, it's just a fair question. Let me read, read for you 1 Timothy 2.12. It says this. Paul writes, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So you might wonder, hey, does this include evangelism? Could you say that evangelism is a form of teaching or exercising authority? If so... Wouldn't this verse preclude women from sharing the gospel with men? You also have another key verse on these women issues, women's roles. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In fact, why don't you turn there? We'll take a little bit closer look at these verses. And you can start with 1 Corinthians 14. As you're turning, I'll read for you verse 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 34 says this The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. So, what does this mean for women sharing the gospel? Well, as you know, some people today commit the error of completely ignoring these verses in the Bible allowing women to be preachers, teachers, elders in the church which is clearly forbidden. At the same time though, other Christians commit the error of making these verses say way more than they do say. And this is where studying the context of a verse is essential to understanding its meaning. And look at this 1 Corinthians 14 verse, verse 34. First, you'll observe that women are not permitted to speak, specifically, he says, in the churches. It's not talking about the home setting or the work setting. He's talking about in the church, a church setting. That much is pretty obvious. But still, does this mean that women at church, they can't say anything? Women can't say a peep. They must remain completely silent during the church service. Is that what he says? The answer is no. The key is the word speak in verse 34. What does Paul mean by this word speak? If you read this verse out of context, you just yank it and you just read the verse, you might be led to believe that he's talking about all speech whatsoever. But he's not talking about all speech whatsoever. So in the context, what is he referring to? He's referring to the speaking gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 all the way through chapter 14, Paul's focus is entirely on spiritual gifts within the church. And in these three chapters alone, 12, 13, 14, Paul uses this word speak 24 times. And every single time he, ref- he uses it to refer to people speaking in tongues or people speaking words of prophecy. Every single time. Paul is talking about the proper and improper use of the speaking gifts. If you look in the context, right before our verse, look at verse 29. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. There's our word, speak. And there's our word silent. Paul is giving instructions for the orderly use of prophecy here in the church assembly. For verse 33, he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then right after this comes verse 34, where he tells women, women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. So hopefully you can see now clearly what he means. Paul is actually regulating women prophesying in the church. Usage of the gift of prophecy in the church. Although the gift of prophecy is no longer in operation today, it certainly was in the early church, and women could have the gift of prophecy. Acts 21, verses 8 and 9, explicitly says that Philip's four daughters were female prophets. They had the gift of prophecy. However, women cannot exercise this gift in the context of the church assembly because then they would be exercising authority over men, and that is not God's intention for them to do. Now, this brings us to that other passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And if you want, you can just flip the page over to 1 Timothy 2.12, just to the right a little bit. I'll read that verse again, 1 Timothy 2.12. Here Paul says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Again, you yank this verse out of its context, you can make it to mean, well, a whole bunch of different things. But what is the context of First Timothy, specifically chapters one through three? What what is his entire point? He's regulating right conduct within the church. This is talking about the local church gathering, the assembly of the church. This verse relates to the church gathering. In that case, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. Why is that? It is because God wants and designed the men to lead. In the church and in the home, God designed men to function as heads and leaders. Women are not allowed to teach in the church assembly, not because they're inferior, not because they're less intelligent, by no means, but simply because God designed and wants men to fill that role. That's just what the Bible says. Specifically, it is the male elders who should be teaching and exercising authority, which Paul talks about in just the next few verses, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you're being honest with the context of these verses, you must admit that they do not directly deal with the issue of women sharing the gospel with men in a non-church setting. In fact, one could easily argue that the act of sharing the gospel does not involve teaching or exercising authority like Paul means it. And that certainly could be the case. So apart from these verses, we're left wondering, well, does the Bible say anything else directly about the issue of women sharing the gospel with men. And here the answer is no. Nothing else is said directly about women sharing the gospel with men. However, there are a few indirect references. For example, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul commends two women who have, quote, shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, end quote. These two women, in some way, shared the gospel ministry with Paul. In Romans 16, Paul greets a few women, and he calls them his fellow workers in Christ. So in some way, they joined in some form of ministry with Paul. And then further, we have the example of Priscilla in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, where she and her husband took along Apollos And explain to him the faith more accurately. In this account, Priscilla's name comes first. Both certainly both she and her husband were involved in this conversation with Apollos, although we don't know what she said, we don't know how much she said, we just don't know. So what are we left with? We're left with a question not directly addressed in the Bible. Can our women share the gospel? With men, Well, we have some general principles, and we have a few indirect references that seem to allow for it. So since women are nowhere prohibited from evangelizing men, and since the few indirect references seem to support this, it generally appears acceptable for women to evangelize men. But this is still not the final word because there are a few clear exceptions to this. Women can partake in gospel ministry so long as so doing would not usurp the authority of their husbands or church leaders. And that's, that's really the chief principle to keep in mind in this entire discussion. It's, it's God's design for the home, for the church. What is God's design? It is the God given responsibility of men to lead. That's just how God designed these relationships. So if a couple is out to dinner with some friends, the husband should be the one to stand up, to lead, to share the gospel. The husband needs to be the spiritual leader. However, if you have maybe a single woman, she's at a bus stop, a man sits next to her, they've got five minutes before the bus comes. It appears certainly acceptable for her to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him. I'll say this, it's it's very good, it's very mature of women to be sensitive to this issue, seeking to always make sure they're within God's designs and bounds. And for men and for women, when you're sharing the gospel with someone of the opposite sex, you must always make sure you avoid the appearance of evil. So no taking out someone of the opposite sex on a dinner date to share the gospel with them. You want to avoid the appearance of evil. But I think all of us can certainly take away from this question, though, the reminder in general. And that is, well, we need to be sharing the gospel. This is a good question. I'm glad this person asked it, sensitive to these issues. But overall, at the end of the day, let us also remember we all need to be concerned about sharing the gospel because people are perishing. Just think of all your loved ones, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, even strangers. They're out there living their lives, busy, and they're perishing. And they will perish, except for the good news of Christ Jesus. And so will you share with them that message of good news? They need to hear. Someone has to tell them, sure, God is sovereign, but he calls us to share. So will you do that? You claim to love these people? You claim to have their best interests in mind? Well, the most loving thing you can do for them is to tell them about the good news of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and the gospel. They need to know. Sure, you may be scared. You may have that fear of man. But if you truly love them, you truly love the Lord, you are to be compelled to share the good news. I encourage you to act on that. Share with others the joy of salvation that you have and you want them to share with as well would encourage you in that. Question number four. What does the Bible say about infants and the rapture? What does the Bible say about infants and the rapture? Do they go to? You guys certainly have a lot of interesting and very technical questions, but let's let's get on with it. The direct answer to this question is that the Bible doesn't say anything about infants and the rapture. Many details of future events have not been revealed, and there are many things we just don't know. Now, that being said, I do think we can actually still answer this question from what we do know about the rapture, and the answer would be no. It does not appear that infants would be raptured. Let me explain a few things. First, briefly, what is the rapture? The rapture refers to a future event where all true believers alive, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. When this takes place is often debated. Some people say at the beginning of the tribulation period, some people say the middle or the end. But all people understand the Bible to teach that at some time before Christ's return, all believers who are left alive will instantly be transported into the Lord's presence instead of living out their days on earth and dying naturally. Now, most Christians also believe in in infant salvation, which means that if a child dies at some undefined age of accountability or before that age, they just go to heaven. This is not because of any merit or goodness on their part, but simply per God's mercy. So if this is true, then shouldn't all children be raptured when the time comes? That's the question. And I can see where this question is coming from because if all of the saved are raptured, well, hey, wouldn't this include children? But the answer is still no, and here's why. The rapture is for all believers who remain alive on earth at that point. And infants and small children technically are not believers. They're technically not believers. They have not turned from their sins. They have not confessed Christ. Really, by no means in the New Testament sense, can we call them believers. If infants die, and if if they go to heaven, it's not because they were saved in the traditional sense of the word. It's simply by God's mercy, God's grace. He saved them, but not because they confessed Christ verbally. Therefore, there's no reason to believe that they would be raptured because at the time of the rapture, even though if they died, they would go to heaven, at the time of the rapture, technically, they weren't believers. Remember, many people will be saved during the tribulation period, which means that they were among the elect. But they still weren't raptured because at the time of the rapture, they were technically still in unbelief, technically still unbelievers at that time. So from the little we do know about this thing called the rapture, it does not appear that infants would be included. Let's leave it there for now. I did receive a few other eschatology questions. One was about the rapture in general. What what does the Bible say about the rapture in general? Another question was about the millennium. Why should our loving God release Satan on earth after the peaceful millennial reign of Christ on earth? Both of these are good questions, neither of which will I answer right now because very soon we're going to be studying these issues on Sunday nights. Very soon here on Sunday evenings, I'm going to be resuming and finishing our study through end times. And when we get to that, we'll answer all these questions then. So I'll save those questions for at that time. We're going to see them very shortly here on Sunday nights. Let me also say that I received a question on infant salvation itself. A big one. What does the Bible say about babies who die? And that's such a huge question. I thought about it, but I just couldn't cram it into our time here. However, I've been asked that question by a lot of people. So I've decided at sometime time in, in the near future, I'm just going to devote an entire full-length sermon to answering that question, what happens to babies who die? Because it's a question just everybody has. So, Sometime in the near future, we'll, we'll answer that question about infant salvation. But we won't do it now. I want to get to this one more question here. Question number five. What does the Bible say about Christ's temptation in the wilderness? Specifically, peccability versus impeccability. Since Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, could he sin or not? Now, most of you are probably wondering, what on earth are peccability and impeccability? And who talks like that? Like, who even uses these words? And the answer is theologians who want to confuse people. But this question is all about whether or not Jesus could have sinned. Could he sin? Now, everyone agrees that he did not sin. That's not the question. The question is, technically, could he have sinned? Was it possible for him to do so? There are two sides to this debate. Some believe that Jesus could have sinned. This is what the word peccable means, or peccability. means able to sin. That's all. It just means able to sin. Others believe Jesus could not have sinned. And that's what impeccable. Impeccability means. Not able to sin. So just kind of file those words away. They're, they're simple once you get it. Peccability, you're able to sin. Impeccability, you're not able to sin. Means it's not even possible. Now, the arguments for each side of this debate revolve around the humanity and deity of Christ. Those who say that Jesus was peccable, meaning he could have sinned, argue that if Jesus had a truly human nature, he had to have been able to sin because that's a part of human nature, just like Adam. Also, you have all these verses saying that Jesus was truly tempted. In all ways, like we are, yet without sin. And if these temptations are to be genuine, he had to have been able to sin. On the flip side, those who say that Jesus was impeccable, meaning he could not have sinned, point to the deity of Jesus. Jesus is primarily a divine being, and as God, he cannot sin. Therefore, retaining his full divinity, Jesus, while on earth, also could not have sinned. So really on both sides, you have very opposing arguments split along the lines of Christ's two natures. If Jesus was able to sin, well then how could he be fully God? But if he was not able to sin, well how could he be fully man? And there you have it. That's the debate, those two sides. As you can tell, it's all going to come down to how you understand the person of jesus christ one person two natures a divine nature and a human nature coming together so how do you understand that so what's the answer to the question was jesus peccable or impeccable was he able to sin or not able to sin and i want to briefly try and argue for you that the answer is both The answer truly is both. And I'm not just copping out. That's not a smart-aleck answer. The Bible really teaches both. So just hear me out. First, think about the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus was fully divine before the Incarnation, during the Incarnation, 100% God. And regarding his divine nature, was Jesus impeccable? The answer is yes. It is not possible for God to sin. Not even possible. Like James 1:13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. It's not that God chooses not to sin; it's that He's not even able to sin, and that's part of God's perfection, which includes Jesus. Now, during the incarnation, when He came down and, and took on human flesh, what happened? Well, this is best explained in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, which states that Jesus, while existing as God, added to himself a human nature. Jesus did not become a man in the sense that he stopped being God. Rather, to his divine nature, he added a human nature. So the incarnation was not a subtraction, but an addition. In the incarnation, Jesus did not lose any part of his divine nature. He did not stop being God in any way. He did not lose a single attribute or any part of it. Rather, he just took on a second nature, a human nature. Now, let's talk about this human nature that Jesus took on. Just how human was this human nature? The Bible says, fully. He wasn't 99% man. He was 100% man. So this human nature that Jesus took on came with all the attributes of a human nature, including... The need to sleep and eat, getting tired, learning, aging, and peccability. That's right. Human nature comes with the ability to sin. And we learn this from Adam. Now, keep in mind, Jesus did not have a fallen human nature or a sinful human nature. No, but he did have a human nature just like Adam did before the fall. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Several other passages make a big deal out of Jesus being the second Adam. He is a true man, and Jesus succeeded in all the ways where Adam failed. And this involves the ability to be tempted and the ability to sin. Jesus truly came as the second Adam with a human nature just like Adam's, and that human nature would have been susceptible to temptation and able to sin. Now, real quick, let's talk for a moment about Christ's temptation. Was he truly tempted to evil? And the answer is yes. Scripture presents Jesus as being genuinely tempted to evil. Matthew chapter 4 and its parallels, we find Jesus being tempted to evil by Satan himself in the wilderness. And clearly, Satan was tempting Jesus to deny God, just like he did with Adam and Eve. And Jesus was distorting God's word to bring this about, just like he did with Adam and Eve. It was a parallel temptation to the garden temptation. Now, some people point out that the word for tempt in Matthew chapter 4, perazzo, can also mean to test So Jesus wasn't really being tempted. He was just being tested by God to prove that he couldn't sin. Now, it is true that Jesus was being tested in the wilderness, and he did prove that he did not sin. And it is true that this word can mean either to tempt or to test. But the determining factor is not who is being tested, but who is doing the testing. God, for instance, never tempts people to evil, like James 1.13 says. However, when Satan is the agent, Peirazzo always means tempting to evil. Of course, Jesus did not have an internal sin nature, which the temptation could appeal to. But then again, neither did Adam. This was an external temptation to evil, just like Adam and Eve experienced But whereas they failed and succumbed to temptation, Jesus did not. So where does this this leave us? Are we any closer to answering the question? We have Jesus, God himself, who in his divine nature is not able to sin. And when he came to earth, he didn't lose that divine nature or any attributes, including the inability to sin. However, in the incarnation, Jesus took on a human nature which came with the ability to sin. And during his time on earth, Jesus was truly tempted to evil, like many passages in Hebrews says. So, so what gives? What, what do we do? And here's the deal. What we find in the person of Jesus is a collection of seemingly contradictory attributes. He has this divine nature with all these divine attributes And at the same time, a human nature with all these human attributes, somehow they come together. Somehow they coexist without contradicting one another. So how can this be? How can Jesus be both omnipresent and present? How can he be omniscient, but also not know some things? How can he be both omnipotent, but tired? And how can he be both able to sin and not able to sin At the same time. But you see, now we're asking a new question. Now we're asking, how can this be? But really, we've already answered the first question. And the answer truly is to all of these both. Was Jesus able to sin or not able to sin? And the answer really is both. Just like he was both all powerful and tired and hungry just like he was both all-knowing, yet he didn't know certain things. This is the biblical answer. He was both truly impeccable and peccable, able to sin and not able to sin. And we could just leave it at that, but I know you're still wondering, well, okay, how? How is that possible? How does that work? How can Jesus possess these attributes at the same time? This is something we've already studied at length in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. We did that on a Sunday evening, so you can get that online if you want the detailed answer. I'm just going to summarize it for you here. During the incarnation, Jesus took on a human nature without losing his divine nature or a single divine attribute. But to enable these attributes to coexist, Jesus laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Although Jesus retained all of his divine attributes, he limited himself from exercising them, entrusting them to the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. So his human attribute of incomplete knowledge limited his omniscience. His human attribute of weakness limited his omnipotence. His human human attribute of being in one place at one time limited his omnipresence and so on. This would also therefore mean that his human attribute of peccability, being able to sin, limited his divine attribute of impeccability. So in a real sense, like the Bible says, Jesus had the ability to sin while walking on earth because of this self-imposed limitation. He could, therefore, experience real, genuine temptation, although he never sinned. And this allows him to be, like Hebrews says, our, our sympathetic high priest. But at the same time, all the while, he never lost his impeccability. Now, if you find yourself dissatisfied by this answer, that's, that's all I can say. It's all the Bible says. To say more would be saying more than Scripture. You get to a point where you can't say anything else. You just have to remain silent. And that silence is not weakness. It is wisdom. Because there are so many mysteries about the person of Jesus, a divine and human nature coming together. I mean, it goes way past our mind. Much of the incarnation is still a great mystery to us. What matters most is just avoiding error. We can certainly say that. Some people really get this wrong and they emphasize the deity of Christ, to the neglect of his humanity, or vice versa. And that is how every heresy has started in church history, by someone getting wrong one person of Christ, or one nature of Christ over the other. You must avoid this, and even though it may just go right over your head, or you may not get this, that's okay. You just have to fully accept what Scripture says, this mind-boggling truth that Jesus was 100% God and 100% 100% man, and that's it. So we're out of time, and let me say this about these Q&A sermons: they they tend to be pretty heavy, pretty academic. And so, if you're new here, all of our sermons are not like this, especially as we start Matthew or Mark in a few weeks here. They're not like this. But that being said, you know, truth matters, doctrine matters, and so we value the time where people can ask even some of these technical questions and get some answers. But can I can I end on a note of worship at the least? Because although today, through these questions, it was a lot of academic stuff. You know, it really was. But the goal of it all, the goal of our study of scripture, the goal of our study of truth and doctrine, is still worship. We seek to know, not just to fill our brains, but to know God more, and to worship more. And so let's not lose sight of the fact that God became the God man in order to save us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That means that God loved you and Christ loved you, took mercy on you to the point that he would humble himself, come to earth, And then die on a cross for your salvation. And that is what God has done for you in this thing we call the incarnation. The forgiveness of our sins, we don't deserve that. The redemption of our souls, we don't deserve that. But we get it. We get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of God's grace, working through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, Even as you study all the technical stuff and all the academics, that's good. But remember, this is all about worshiping the Savior. And don't lose sight of that. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is something we do willingly. Also be comforted. Now we live for the Lord we seek to serve him in our lives we seek to follow him as his disciples but it can be hard. We still stumble and fall into sin sometimes we succumb to temptation but be comforted because in the Incarnation Jesus came, As our high priest, and he too was tempted in all ways that we were, yet without sin. Through Jesus, we can understand and know that it is possible not to sin, to overcome sin in this life, and to be pleasing to the Lord. Learn to depend on the Savior, to trust him, to call out to him each and every day. And he is our great hope. For Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's not forget that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word, and your word truly is simple enough for a child to understand and confess, like we heard this morning with the baptism. At the same time, we can search its depths and never be satisfied. There is so much in your word, and we marvel at it. We thank you, though, for it. It is by it we know you, and by it we are guided in the truth. Let us not confuse, though, a study of the word with, with worshiping you. We want to keep you as our focus always. And remember that even as we study and learn and answer questions, what matters most is that we are geared toward worshiping you, serving you, living rightly before you, and enjoying you all of our days. May we do that now. It is in your name we pray. Amen.